This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In the past 500 years, there's only been three innovations when it comes to women's period. Hey guys, this is Ankita Rao. I'm an associate editor with Motherboard. You might have heard me on last week's podcast. And I'm here with Jason Kevler. Hey, what's who up? You I'm all here know. all the time. <laughs> and we're going to talk about something exciting and a little bit different today. And I hope that all of you, especially the men, um, stick around and listen. So today on Radio Motherboard, we're going to talk about the future of periods, which are kind of a hot topic right now for several reasons. But what do men think of this? I took a stroll on the streets of Williamsburg to find out. How many different types of period products do you know about? Does Midol count? Um, tampons, pads. Uh, one of my close friends started a company called Finks, which is an underwear company that is period-proof. What do you think is most confusing to you about periods that you've never been able to understand? <sighs> or is there anything confusing? I can't say I understand anything about it. Having never experienced it myself. Yeah, no, I've never experienced it myself, but I did. In all fairness, my mother explained it to me when I was very young and then said, okay, now go tell your brothers. So that's... Uh, <laughs> Some have cramps, some don't seem to have any problems, so, uh, you know, I guess it's a wonder of the world, as they'd say. There's a Kids in the Hall sketch where Dave Foley is like, I'm the man who's comfortable with menstruation, and that's, I've always been like, I want to be that guy when I grow up. So now I have grown up. Periods are nothing new, obviously, but for the first time in maybe centuries, we're seeing some innovation in the products we use and the way we talk about them. And Karen Gandhi, who I met in Copenhagen during a conference called We Deliver, is kind of on the front lines of this movement. Also, all of the music in this podcast is hers, and that's kind of amazing. My name is Karen Gandhi. I grew up in New York City, and I went to Georgetown University, where I studied math and political science, and I did my minor in women's studies. And from there, I actually went on to work in the music industry for two years in L.A., I was the first digital analyst at a record label called Interscope, which is home to Lady Gaga and Kendrick Lamar, an amazing artist. Um, I, from there, went on tour with MIA for about a year, during which I was also um, at Harvard doing my MBA. I graduated last year, and around the same time, I ran the London Marathon um, free bleeding on my period. And a couple months later, the story went completely viral. 
And so my past year has actually been very exciting and energetic. I've been traveling to speak a lot about uh, menstrual stigma around the world and also working on my own music and my own album, uh, which uh, I produce music under my name, Madam Gandhi. Could you tell me, in your own words, the exact thought process of waking up that day and what was going through your mind and what got you yeah. to do what you did? I had been training for the London Marathon for about a year. And I knew I was getting my period, but I didn't know exactly when. And it turned out to be exactly in that moment. So like any of us who have been caught on our cycles unprepared, I started evaluating my options. First option, a pad. Terrible idea because they say chafing is the worst on a marathon course, no matter what. The second option, a tampon. Still an issue with the chafing. Also, it was my first day of my period, so the heavy flow, I didn't want to have to carry an extra tampon with me running the entire 26 miles. And there's no privacy on a marathon course, so when you're running, there's no place to be changing out a tampon or anything like that. And so because these options were so terrible, it actually was a no-brainer to me to just take some Midol, bleed freely, and run. I didn't know exactly how it was gonna go, but to me that seemed like the most comfortable option given the situation. And the more I ran, I knew that while it shouldn't be a big deal, it was a big deal. And that while I had the choice to reject my own shame that day, millions of women and girls around the world do not. And the more I thought about it, I realized that this is something that we don't tackle at all. And that if you ask me, stigma is one of the most effective forms of oppression because it denies you the vocabulary to talk confidently and comfortably about your own body, which is crazy. Right after what happened, I wrote on my blog a piece about it. I wrote about my experience seeing my dad and brother, you know, with them noticing my blood, um, other people on the marathon course who totally didn't care because everyone's on their own marathon journey. And I wrote about the fact that there's just such a global issue that affects the environment, that affects confidence, that affects emotional well-being, that affects the economy. Women who don't go to school, this marks the beginning of their economic disenfranchisement. And so for all these reasons, when I wrote the blog, it just lived on my site for a couple months. But later on, Mike.com found it. They republished it. And then Australia found it and republished it. And then London found it. And all these different uh, publications started writing about this and the story went completely viral in August of last year. Where you wrote about seeing your dad and brother because for a second you're like shit this is like this that was the only time where you're like oh my god this is kind of weird and then you're like oh no they're just really happy to see me but tell me about like what was that like and how'd you get over it so fast? I was running a marathon it's like I can't imagine a guy who would be concerned about the eyes of spectators when he has a job to do, which is to run 26 miles. He'd be like, no, I need to make the decision that's best for myself in this moment that allows me to do this job that I have to do. And so that was actually the thing that enabled me to overcome the shame. When I ran into my dad and brother though, even if you go online now, you can see photos of me pulling my marathon jersey over my shorts as I'm trying to run because I didn't want them to feel embarrassed or uncomfortable. But if you flip it, I think we should be seeing something like that as a power move. You know, women around the world do incredible things while on their periods, and we don't celebrate it, and we make them be quiet about it, and we make them feel awkward about it. The thing that allowed me to get over it was not only the fact that I was running a marathon, but also because both of them were so supportive and had so much love for me when I passed by. They just gave me a big hug and encouraged me to keep running. That felt really good. But I do think that shame and stigma is a gender issue in that most women and girls made, get made fun of by their male counterparts, whether they're in school or maybe in the workplace. In the States, it's just as bad. Less than a year ago, Donald Trump used Megyn Kelly's period as an insult against her. This is something that's very real. 
in Uganda and many parts of the global south, young girls um, would rather stay at, at home than go to school for fear that a little bit of blood might show through their clothes and the boys will make fun of them. So I think the symbolism of my dad and brother being supportive is the kind of symbolism that we would need men to be part of around the world, which is to say, no, I'm not going to make fun of the sisters in my life who are going through this. I'm going to support them. Did you talk to your dad and brother later and after? I'm sure you did. Did they express anything about that? My dad was the coolest about it. He was like, this is amazing. Like, I didn't even realize, like, this is, you can tell me anything. Like, I'm on your side, you know? And he just gave me a big hug. And you know how, like, they, at the end of a marathon, it's kind of the tradition to have the big foil to make sure the marathoner stays warm. So he had just draped that over me. And he was, like, at one of the bars at the end of the finish line, like, having a couple of beers and, like, waiting for us to cross. And it was just, like, it felt really good, actually. He was super, like, wow, that's awesome. And your brother, I don't know how old he is, but was that something that he had known before or talked about before? My little brother was also very, very good about it. But I have to say that I think the reason why they are both good about it is because I also was extremely confident about it because I had crossed the finish line. It was a good time given that I was on the first day of my period. I had never run practicing on my period, so I felt proud of myself and I felt very open about it. So if you feel confident, you feel open, then you are actually actively rejecting your own shame. It makes it very difficult for somebody else to embarrass you. And that's what we have to teach young girls around the world. But instead, what we teach them, be quiet about it, hide it away. If someone sees you, it's going to be bad news, you know. And when you do that, then how can a girl take control of her own body and take confidence over her own body? No. Instead, she's constantly reduced to this shame. So I think, had I been embarrassed about it, I'm sure my little brother would have jumped on that opportunity. Um, any little boy would. But because I was confident, there wasn't room for him to make fun. And instead, he rallied behind it and was just super supportive. Now that you've been doing this for a year, I think you've... You know, you've been verbalizing a lot, the words are there. How much of that processing came afterward and being in the limelight, how has that helped you put it in context? Mm. I knew well before I ran the marathon that the menstruation stigma was a global issue. I knew that it was holding girls back from school. I knew that it was something that most organizations weren't tackling because it's not a life or death issue. And I also knew that in the States, it's so annoying that we still are quiet if, you know, two girls are talking about periods and a boy joins the conversation, they'll immediately be quiet about it. Or we still hide tampons or pads in our pockets when we walk to the bathroom to change them out. So I, I don't like that, you know, and I, I knew in my head it was something that I was not comfortable with. And so I knew the running bleeding freely while I was comfortable with it, I knew it would be a radical act. I was actually deeply influenced by a group of artists in Barcelona, in Spain, actually named Sangre Menstrual. And they did a protest where they all wore white pants to work one day and they painted their crotch red. And I was so obsessed with this, you know, and I had also some friends in my community in college and in L.A., um, who would use their menstrual blood as paint, you know, and paint photos with it, pictures with it. And so those kinds of subliminal influences made me more comfortable and more celebratory of my own body. So that was more where I was coming from. But afterwards, when the story went viral and it was completely unpredictable, I had to get good at my stats that week because I was given the mic, you know. I was given the mic to talk about this issue and educate others as to how bad it really is and what does the landscape look like right now. And so I remember that week, I didn't sleep once. You know, it was like 4 a.m. I would call Nigeria, and then 6 a.m. was BBC, and then 3 p.m. was NPR in the States, you know, with you guys. And 
It was uh, it was an amazing week. It was so challenging. You mentioned that you called Nigeria, and I always wonder, like, sure, it's easy for us to talk about on Twitter, but does it reach the places where, mm-hmm. like in Nepal, where the Chobadi is still, like, hiding women yeah. in different houses yeah. or in India? What do you think about that, and do you feel like your message totally. is there? I have thought a lot about this issue because one of the main criticisms that came out of my marathon was, oh, if this girl really wanted to make such an impact, why didn't she just donate some pads to Ghana? And... I always think about our sphere of influence. You have to be very aware of what is the impact that you can make given your skill sets and your passion. And how can you do something authentically? And when I think about the landscape of social justice, I feel like there are really four levers that we can pull to make change. So the first is radical activism, using something shocking to really get people questioning societal norms. That was absolutely the purpose of the marathon. The second is access to information, so the media. I mean, in the global north, the media was deeply instrumental in putting this issue on the map in 2015. It was incredible. NPR did a beautiful piece about this. Cosmo, Newsweek just put it on the cover of their magazine. So that makes everyone aware that this is something that we must combat as a society. Um, Under that same heading, artists are using their work to to combat norms because it's safe and non-threatening. And education. I mean, there's one organization here at Women Deliver called Zana Africa, and they're making sure that girls know about their own bodies so that they feel confident to tackle taboo. The third one is policy change. Lawyers and many people in their communities are very intelligent when it comes to knowing the law, knowing how it works, and changing laws that are sexist towards women and don't help them on their periods. And the final is innovation. You know, stigma is the common thread here. Whereas when you can't talk about your own problems and your own discomfort on your period because it's so awkward, the innovators can't come in and build a better solution. And to me, that's why these four are so intertwined and they matter, because the innovators won't have access to to the problem if there's no radical activism and media to actually talk about the problem. And imagine, you know, every six months we get an iPhone, okay? In the past 500 years, there's only been three innovations when it comes to a women's period. Literally, a tampon, a pad, and a cup. Because no one wants to talk about it, so no one knows how to build a viable solution. And furthermore, this is an environmental issue. All of the disposable, disposable products that we use, it's actually not the best solution. Not only for us, the FDA doesn't print the toxic materials that are used in tampons and pads to this day. And it's not good for the environment because most of that stuff is not biodegradable. And finally, think about this. In some communities in, uh, in the global south, it might be very appropriate to make reusable um, underwear and pads. But that presupposes that those communities have access to running water. If that community doesn't have access to running water, then that's a terrible solution. So instead, we have to give uh, pads or something that's biodegradable. And so innovation is one of the most important levers of all of those. And it's not sparked unless the rest of the chain exists as well. So that's really how I think about how the two tie together, is that radical activism sparks us to all start caring and starts the innovators and the policymakers to come in and treat that change like a higher le- with a higher level of importance. We're going to be right back with some more Karen Gandhi, but first I wanted to check in with Jason and unpack some of the stuff that we talked about. I think that there's a lot of myths about periods, like when you're a teenager, you can't go swimming with your period or like it's somehow dangerous to not wear a tampon or something. And I think that's something that society hasn't really taught us very much about us being like Dudes. teenage men, yeah. teenage boys. Yeah. yeah. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Also, I thought it was very weird that in general, girls get their period like way before boys go through puberty of any sort. Like 13, so it's like 13, 14. When do guys go through puberty? Like, like 13, 14. But time. no, the average age of menstruation now is like, like nine yeah. or something. Not it's nine. I don't know. I've seen articles. <laughs> it's hormones in the milk. It's not nine, but you're right. You're right. Yeah. It's earlier than ever. You it's, know what, though? I wanted to ask you, you know, Kieran is talking about running this race and free bleeding and if you think about like seeing somebody on the subway who just has like a big period stain or something, or even just listening to her story, what's your what would you think? I can say that in my life, I have never even one time noticed a period stain on anyone, like a stranger. Yeah. I don't know that if that's like a problem. I don't think I'm supposed to be like looking at strangers' crotches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Um, okay, that's yeah. a safe. <laughs> I think that's a safe bet. Also, I've had so many weird stains on my clothes, and it's never what you think it is. Like, I'm wearing a sweatshirt that's just, like, half of it is black right now, and it's, like, from bike oil. It's not from yeah, dirt. Yeah, you've got, you've got bigger problems. Yeah. Everyone knows about pads and tampons, but there are two newish products in the spotlight these days. One is the menstrual cup, which is not completely new, but it's a silicone cup that is reused through your period. And the other is Thinx, which is an underwear designed by a woman named Mickey Uggerwall. And it's actually supposed to soak up your blood so that you stay dry on your period without using anything at all. That's why each pair of Thinx that you buy funds a pack of washable, reusable pads for one girl in the developing world, a girl who otherwise wouldn't have access to any real form of protection. Sometimes, when you change your underwear, you end up changing the world. Karen actually partners with Thinks, so I wanted to ask her about some of these innovations and where she thinks that they're going. I've never enjoyed wearing tampons, mostly because it's um, time-consuming. Like, I have to make sure I carry them all the time. And you can look at me right now, like, I'm only carrying a credit card in my wallet and my cell phone in my wallet because I don't like to carry stuff around. So that's not a good solution for me. Um, and so majority of the time when I'm towards the end of my cycle, I usually try not to wear anything because I just don't want to. It's, un- it's annoying. And so for me, Thinks was actually a great option. So the first two days wear it with a, a tampon and then the rest of the time you know that you're wearing um, underwear that's made of a material that, that's highly absorptive. So you don't have to worry that you're going to stain your clothes or that you're going to show through your, your clothes. So in that way, I think it's a fantastic solution. I do think things is actually encouraging women to not have to wear anything at all with their underwear, which I haven't tried yet. I tried it on the marathon, obviously. Um, we saw how that went. Uh, but I like that we're pushing these boundaries. Like the fact that people are uncomfortable bleeding freely and comfortably into underwear just shows that's a stigma. Like that's not a reality. That's just something that we, we can't even fathom because we haven't done it. Innovators, by building good solutions and then having all of us share our experiences with it, are actually combating taboo and also making everything better. There's so much going on. There's like the tampon tax debate in the States, and then in the UK, they're trying to figure out whether people should get leave during their period. With the leave thing, I'm always like, I feel like this may work against us because men will use any excuse to be like, oh, they need special privileges Mm -hmm. or whatever. 
and I hate that that's something I worry about, but when something like menstruation comes into the limelight finally right. after centuries, is there, should there be a concern that it'll somehow backfire? There's so much to be said about this. You know, when people want to use this against us, I get very irritated because to me that's blatant sexism. Um, would you ever go up to someone who uh, uses a ramp for their wheelchair and say, God, you're so lucky you get to use the ramp and I have to use the stairs, fuck you. No, you wouldn't. You'd say, God, I feel blessed that I have a pair of functioning legs that I can walk, you know? You feel, um, maybe you say, how can I help you if there's a way that I can help you? Or mutual, I mean, how can I be helped? Either one. And I would say that men should feel lucky that they don't have to experience painful cramps every month or um, something as uncomfortable as a period every month. I think also we have to be intelligent enough to recognize that the female body has such a range of experiences. Some of us, like myself, get debilitating cramps. It's awful. I always have to have my idol around me. For other people, they don't even realize they have their period. It's not even a big deal. For some who use certain birth control, they don't even literally have a period. So there is a burden, sort of a, a responsibility on the part of women to be honest about their own bodies. But that kind of honesty and that kind of level of being truthful about whether you need time off work is something that exists whether you have a period or not. I can lie and say like, oh, I'm really sick today, but really I just want to hang out with my friend or whatever. That kind of lying happens all the time. And we've figured out a way to just trust our employees and notice that you know, either they actually need time off or they're lying. I think it's the same when it comes to women. I just think that if we want to figure this out, we will. In the U.S., it's interesting also seeing the clash between that conversation and, and that normalizing of this experience and then this blatant policing of women's bodies that seems to be happening more than ever. Mm -hmm. Have you been in situations, whether it's like talking in the Deep South or, or something like that, where you feel like that clash is very obvious and how would you address that? I think policing happens when women are not part of the conversation. You know, Mahatma Gandhi had a very amazing quote, actually, when it came to British rule. The British would often say, oh, but we're doing this, this, and this for your own good. He said, anything that you're doing, quote, unquote, quote, for my own good, and I'm not part of that conversation, you're doing it against me. Simple. And that's exactly how we have to see the policing of women's bodies. If you're, quote, unquote, doing it for my own good, but I'm not part of the conversation, you're working against me. You need to have women engaged telling you, telling the lawmakers, telling uh, change makers exactly what their experiences are like. And you need many voices in that conversation because there's such a gamut of experiences. I think... You know, perhaps this is a bit too radical, but I remember speaking to a sports team who was thinking um, in, I think they were in Bristol or something like that, where they were thinking about what if we knew exactly where each of our um, teammates were on their cycle? And we were able to know, like, in week two, this set of hormones means that you should really be focused on stretching and on um, being playing defense. But in the third week of your cycle, when you're super active and hyper and excited, you should be on the front lines of the soccer team. What if we were actually able to be so intelligent about how hormones work and affect us that we can use it to our advantage? Now, I have heard the counter of that is that if we're wrong or we make a mistake, then we are actually putting someone on the sidelines who doesn't need to be on the sidelines. But I like the idea of approaching the body with science as opposed to, oh, they're too hormonal. Oh, they're too in pain. Oh, their bodies are so inconvenient to the workplace. Oh, this is so annoying. We can't figure this out. No, like we have rocket scientists. We've landed on the moon over 50 years ago. Like female bodies, we can figure it out, it's just that we don't want to. Mm -hmm. I also talk about something in my shows called 3D femininity. 
And 3D femininity is the notion that at times we are extremely empowered and loud and we know exactly what we want and we're bossy and we're madams. That's sort of the notion of Madam Gandhi. But at other times we're very vulnerable. Maybe we're in a relationship that's difficult for us or we're going through a tough time. And so you'll see in my shows there's both. And that caught some people off guard because when they think of a feministy show, they think riot girl, punky, aggressive. Um, but no, to me, feminism is having the choice to exhibit the fullest range of your emotions without being made fun of or penalized for it. So those are the two different ways that I try to use uh, gender equality to make change in the music industry. MIA, of course, is always a spokesperson for a lot of different issues. Did you learn any way, anything from touring with her in the way that she approached some of that? Absolutely. When I used to be with MIA, I used to realize just daily how engaged she is in so many of the different politics going on around the world. You know, she would be on Twitter in our tour van um, telling people what's up, what's going on in Sri Lanka today, what's going on in even England today that's problematic. And I respected that so much because I was watching it from behind the scenes and it was lived, it was real, everything that we sort of think her to be. I love, too, that she was so clearly a champion of what she calls you know, third world democracy, this notion of making sure that people where she comes from, Sri Lanka and India, etc., um, feel liberated, feel safe, feel um, powerful. And I liked that she was so critical of Western norms. You know, she was so critical that when we would cross the Canadian border into the States, for example, this was in the summer of 2013, her border inspection, her passport inspection, literally took like five and a half hours. You know, and all of us, the guy, they just literally signed off, boom, 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 boom. Dancers, drummers, singer, boom, 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 management, 10 minutes. And for hers, it was like a five and a half hour thing. And she had to perform that night. So like, that's grueling and that's tiresome. But her work is so intense and so meaningful that it has the attention of the U.S. government that she's like flagged as a potential threat, you know? And that's incredible. I mean, to think that music and art has that much of an influence on how people think and understand their own identities, that's deeply inspiring to me. I think that that's one of the best things we have now is mm -hmm. that those things can be shared so quickly, mm -hmm. and, and you've seen that in your own work. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you saw the Ruby Kaur's Instagram thing that also <laughs> went viral. Um, with all of that being shared, mm. how do you make sure that, I guess, how do you make sure your voice doesn't get sort of retweeted into like oblivion, kind mm. of? Like, how do you? control that message and, and make it go somewhere. I think it's exactly related to the four levers I pointed out to you earlier. The more you talk about something and make sure that it stays on the map relevant and that people um, engage and care about it, I do think that inspires the innovators or that inspires maybe people who have donation money to give to causes who have always been working on menstrual health issues but never got the attention they deserved. And that's actually what we're seeing a lot uh, recently. So many of these organizations have struggled to access grant money or to fundraise because no one thinks that menstruation is enough of an issue because it's not life or death. But in educating people to say that this is related to the environment, this is related to confidence levels, this is related to the economy, sort of the girl impact idea that if you enable women to go to school and feel confident, they actually make far greater change in their communities than we see with a lot of the men. Um, that's actually what I want to inspire. And more donation money going to the organizations that know exactly what their respective communities need and how to serve their communities better is what makes a difference. One of my classmates at Harvard, is uh, she started a company called Satipads. And I love speaking to her because every time I talk to her, she's iterated the company. And their most recent development is that she's made um, a pad out of banana leaves. And it's an end-to-end -end cycle whereby the women of the community 
um, are employed to make the pads. They sell them to those women in that same community. After the women are able to use the pads, you're able to dispose of it, and it's used as fertilizer for the cows and other farm animals that are there. And the cycle continues. And obviously the fertilizer feeds the banana trees. The banana trees, the leaves are used for the pads. It's amazing. It's so amazing. But I don't think that if this issue had received the attention that it deserved, companies like this would not be popping up. And the funny thing is, is that even men are like coming out of the woodwork and they're like, yo, this is a business opportunity, yo. Like, we haven't figured this out yet. Let's figure something out. Like, let's make something amazing. And not that, uh, not to say that it is hugely problematic that, you know, the commercialization of women's bodies pockets wealthy shareholders. I appreciate that criticism a lot. But I do also value innovation that's cost efficient, that brings the price of hygiene care down, and that makes us feel good so that we can be the best women at our jobs and in our schools that we can be. I can share something that I learned just like a week ago, which is that a lot of times when we speak about menstrual issues in the global south, um, we talk a lot about how girls and women have to miss either work or school, which marks the beginning of their economic disenfranchisement. But the funny thing is that actually there's been plenty of times when many women explain that they enjoy having those four five days off because their work is so grueling and they are mistreated when they are farming or in the fields that it's actually a benefit to them. So that's kind of a funny thing is where we make a lot of assumptions about the way things work and then how you know the society could be. But in actuality, um, it might be a blessing for many women that they are offered that time off um, because otherwise it'd be too demanding. So I think when I hear things like that, you get confused because you're like, okay, well, I know that it's better for all of us to be working, but is that just a Western ideal, or excuse me, ideal of the global North, which is like, you know, 40 hour work weeks and, you know, two weeks off the entire year. Um, is that an ideal that we have? And maybe it's better that we take time off on our period and that our productivity shouldn't be marked by how many hours we work, but the quality of our work. So those are things when I feel like my theories about how the world works get flipped on its head, but I'm grateful for those moments. To listen to more Karen Gandhi, you can find her on SoundCloud as Madam Gandhi. That's G-A-N-D-H-I.